Hello, hello, and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Mr. Brock Wilbur. How is everybody doing this week? How are you feeling? Uh, Feeling buoyant? Feeling joyous? Feeling good? Are we feeling good because the end is almost here? The end is almost here of 2020. Oh boy, thank God, here we are. And we are recording right now the last episode of Streetwise for the year. Taking two weeks off to go have some holidays and be beholden to nobody. I'm going to play some video games. Also, I'm not really taking two full weeks off because absolutely we are there every day at thepitchkc.com doing the news and entertainment that everyone depends on us to do uh, because we love it. We love the city. We love what we do. You cannot keep us from it, which is becoming something of a problem. Uh, My wife informs me that, uh, you know, sometime I need to shut the laptop and it doesn't happen any of the hours that we are awake, any of the days of the week. So going to try, going to try for some small holiday breaks here. And I'll just uh, assume that no big news stories happen on those days. We'll just, we'll hope for the best there. I I guess we're at the point where we are so close to the end of the year, but still somehow so many days away. uh, It it feels like that uh, sketch from uh, Chappelle's show back in the day uh, where they, uh, they wish that they could take the light that uh, runs at award shows uh, that says wrap it up, that flashes at people to make them wrap up their speech. Uh, and and if you could just take that light with you anywhere in life, the, uh, the wrap it up box, and you could just hit the button on top and it would inform people, time to wrap it up. I'm, I feel like I'm just absolutely beating the crap out of the button on top of the wrap it up box right now. And it's just sort of aimed in general at the, at the year. And I, I know that, I know that nothing, actually changes on January 1st, 2021, but it'll, it'll feel like blocking your ex's phone number or, or at the very least, like unfriending them on some social media platform, not even blocking them. Just like I'm, I'm taking some visible step towards moving away from this thing that I know wasn't good for me. And I think we can all agree 2020 wasn't good for any of us. 2021 hasn't said whether or not they want to go out with us yet, but we should spend some time with them. That's what I firmly believe. So, um, just here, kind of, kind of checking the watch pretty constantly. Just being like, there's, there's just too many, there's too many days left. There's too many hours in total here. It should be, it should be new thing. And and again, I know that we are uh, months upon months away from anything that looks like the normal world that we used to know. Uh, if and that's a, 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 a positive. <laughs> uh, that, that's an estimate that I, I really hope we can reach. I would call it aspirational. Even with that, I just, I just want to be out of this space. (laughs) Something is haunted here. Something has been terrible. January 1st will not be different. It will not be a new space. I will still be where I am, but it will feel like somebody has walked through and sort of saged the room, just burned enough sage to get rid of some of the spirits. And like, I don't know, at this point, maybe I believe in sage. Who cares? There's, there's no one here to make fun of me. Uh, There's no one here to tell me that I'm wrong because also, who knows? Maybe sage is uh, what clears the air of coronavirus. Still, no one knows what's happening anywhere, and I'm ready to trust scientists with witchcraft. Whatever. It, 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 there can be a blend over there. I, I'll, I'll try whatever makes anything feel better. Anyway, we have a really fun show today to end the year with. Uh, we've got a couple of great interviews. Uh, we also have a really fun uh, reading from our most recent magazine. Uh but I'm, I'm going to kick off with one of the interviews here. Uh, I'm going to talk to Katie Camlin. And Katie is somebody that uh, just had, a, probably out of everyone in Kansas City, the biggest breakout year. Like, sure, Patrick Mahomes has had a great couple of years here. Uh, and and actually, Katie's story and Patrick's are, are intertwined. Uh, Katie, if you're not from town, because everyone from town knows who Katie is, uh, Katie uh, works at a liquor store. Katie is super fun. Katie had... A pretty normal-sized Twitter presence, uh, and is just uh, a fun, awesome chick who uh, plays video games and likes booze. And like, I don't know uh, who else anyone would want uh, to be the ambassador for Kansas City. Anyway, she uh, kind of found out early uh, that uh, Patrick Mahomes was getting a ten-year contract extension, which largest like contract extension in the history of the sport, uh, based on the money and the time. Uh, she tweeted about it, uh, because she, uh, encountered, uh, someone buying, uh, the Dom Perion, uh, required to celebrate such an event. 
Uh, and she wound up scooping everyone in the sports journalism world <laughs> to this story. Uh, yes, the the clerk at a liquor store in Kansas City beat everyone at ESPN and has since then <laughs> become sort of synonymous with breaking news stories uh, in a way that she is constantly frustrating to me here at the pitch where I'm like, just come work for me. If you have all these things that you know, just by being this uh, this woman of the people that everyone feels comfortable talking to. Uh, and then sometimes she she tweets the things out. So just wanted to sit down and talk to her about having the wildest 2020 ever in such a positive way, because now she's always on ESPN as they replay this story that they did about her. And everyone knows who she is. And there is just this insane amount of spotlight cast upon her, and it could not have happened to a nicer, better person. Uh, so here is my chat about her 2020, uh, me and Katie. Katie, welcome to Streetwise. Would you introduce yourself to the audience, please? <laughs> um, hi, I'm Katie, uh, Katie Camlin. You may know me uh, as the girl who broke the Mahomes contract record, I guess. Um, hi, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, you're in a weird spot for the intro. So, like, this is part of a series of profiles of people that had just a fucking awesome 2020. You're like, okay, what, like okay. four people in the world I can think of that had like a nice <laughs> year. And so it's sort of wonderful. So previous to the thing that happened, what is your life? What is it that you do? What is it that excites you? What do you do with your time? <laughs> All right, cool. So um, obviously, I love beer. I'm the beer manager at Plaza Liquor, um, something that I started at the end of May. Um which is, I, uh, for outsiders, just a mm, chef's kiss, top-notch place. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Um, so I spend a lot of my time playing video games. Um, You've got a gaming PC. I read a lot of books. Uh, overall, just kind of a big dork, I would say. Um, I'm a big dork for a lot of things. I love sloths. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just... I do. I love Kansas City. I love local breweries, um, local stores, local restaurants. That's kind of my jam. And now more than ever, for sure. So, yeah. Okay. So we'll get into that part of it. So what is the inciting incident that turns your 2020 into uh, a cool, fun roller coaster ride of neat stuff and bullshit? <laughs> oh, man. So and this, I've said this on a couple other podcasts, but the story has kind of become almost like a caricature. I think. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to tell how it actually happened um, and hopefully not to disappoint. So it starts with me being very hungover after the 4th of July. Um, and um, I don't know if anyone else can relate, but like a lot of the time when I'm hungover, like I'm extra anxious. Um, so I was just kind of having like a, a weird, like kind of anxious, kind of hungover day. So I came into work on, I believe it was Monday, July 6th. I think it was the Monday after 4th of July. And uh, this is the part that's kind of been conflated with all this media, but I came into work and my boss came up to me and he goes, Hey, some guy from the chiefs was just here. He was looking to buy some Dom. He wanted to buy six bottles. And I was like, Oh my God. And my boss goes, right. And I asked him who it was. And he said, he couldn't tell me, but I asked him if it was Chris Jones. And he said, no. And so my boss and I were both like, we're literally in the beer cooler, like, <gasps> like gossiping. Um, and we're like, it has to be Patrick Mahomes, right? And he's like, that's what I'm thinking. And we were like, cool. So I pulled out my phone. At this point, I had, I think, like close to 2,500 followers, which is still crazy to me. Um, You're also already what I would consider a Casey influencer. Like that's Casey already more influencer. Than <laughs> so I just kind of like wasn't thinking and I was just like, doo -doo 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 -doo. Um, you know, we've all seen the tweet, but uh, you know, she's for buying some champagne. Uh, I think it's Patrick Mahomes and then put my phone in my pocket, kind of go about my, my day. And then I, I keep you like shift without looking right. Like that's how this goes. <laughs> what do you say? You like finish a shift without looking back at the phone, right? Um, no, because things started blowing up like during the shift. So I'm, I'm doing stuff for about five, 10 minutes. And I see my phone just like lighting up, lighting up, people freaking out. And I was like, was this a bigger deal than I thought? <laughs> because I think in my head, I have this, just this conception that like, obviously we were going to sign Mahomes. I kind of thought it was a no brainer. And so I had this weird like kind of illogical viewpoint that like it wasn't a big deal because we all knew it was coming, I guess. Um, and so my phone starts blowing up and then I was like, oh no, this is a lot. <laughs> um, 
What was this when you were like, did you have a moment of like, oops, I shouldn't have done that? Or were you like, yeah. I, this is like, I, you, you're, you're basically saying it like, I'm not saying a thing that should have come as a surprise. Like certainly we were going to yeah. resign so Patrick Mahomes following a Super Bowl victory. So that's why I tweeted it because I was like, well, duh. But then when it started to pick up steam and I think the when I started freaking out was when someone said, they're talking about you on 810. And I was like, uh-uh, I know, oh no. <laughs> um, well, what's 810 for people that don't know? Oh yeah, the sports radio. And so I started wondering like, if that was a bad thing to tweet, you know, I had been at this new job for just over a month. And then I started thinking, well, this is maybe bad customer service. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe it's a loose lip sink ship sort of situation. Like, yeah. Oh, and so yeah. I started, <laughs> I started freaking out. And so I deleted the tweet. I was like, uh, you didn't see anything. <laughs> um, and then I was like, oh, okay, I deleted it, it's gone. But then people were still tweeting me screenshots of it. And I was like, oh, just let it die. Um, and then around 1.30, I think, um, is when Adam Schefter tweeted about the extension. Um, and I said, ha, we were right. Um, I told my manager, I was like, oh, look, we were right, but we knew first. And then my notifications just exploded. Um, a bunch of people started tagging me under Adam Schefter's and they were like, old news, Katie called it, you know, two hours ago. Um, and it just kind of took off from there. And then all of a sudden I've got local news stations like coming in the door. I've got the Casey star calling the store. And then our store owner calls me cause she's trying to figure out what's going on. And this is super lame, but I like ran to the back and was just like, <laughs> no part of that is lame no one's prepared to do that in the middle of the afternoon with no prompting I was just like I'm in trouble the chiefs are gonna be mad or you know they're not gonna want to shop with us anymore um and it just was this huge it was a, a really messy wild day I was very exhausted <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah and then I mean since then you know, we've, we've had some fun with it. The Chiefs came in and we filmed a little promo bit. And then, um, you know, I went on Adam Schefter's podcast, which was crazy. Nice, really nice guy, by the way. Um, and then the, I guess the, the piece de resistance was the, uh, the ESPN NFL Sunday countdown spot that they came out and filmed at the store. Um, which, so I, which you've fallen into a thing wild. that like is a very specific thing that like, uh, friends of mine in the film world uh, that are critics like wind up on like talking head documentaries where they've got something and their thing is that they're like hey as a heads up if you're ever going to film something like this just be aware that for the rest of your life people at random are going to see this on tv or on streaming or something and every time they see you they're immediately going to text you and probably text you a picture of however you looked and what you were wearing at the time so don't be schlubby and like it, it is uh immediately like the thing with you because like i have one uh, during coronavirus safe uh, sports bar here in, in Casey and like the number of times that I've looked up at the TV and seen your spot replaying and like I think I've texted <laughs> you like twice but not nearly as many times as it's been there it's like oh, hey funny. you're on the TV yet again and like it's always that same spot replaying I'm like yeah look at you you're on the ESPN like good for you <laughs> that you can never it's, it's your hotel California you're just always there oh yeah and the funny thing is I think I've watched it twice and then it's just weird. I don't Who know. Who wants to see themselves beyond that? Like, no, it's, it's not. super weird. <laughs> and my boss was playing it for everybody that came in the store. And I was like, la, 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 la. I'm not listening. That, that's the other part of it is that, like, you have now been uh, via this propelled in this sort of into a national spotlight. But certainly now you are an ambassador for the entire city because everyone loves what you represent. But you were already before all of this just such a incredibly positive Kansas City person that everyone enjoyed that like the follower count doesn't change anything you continue to be that ambassador uh just with like a, a slightly larger platform now and like I don't know it it is fascinating to watch for the rest of us because like uh, as somebody that has uh, been surprised uh with Spotlight before I understand how good and bad that can be and it's difficult sometimes to watch because it's like yeah, it's really cool to have attention sometimes. And then other times, especially like, you know, you, my, my terrible time was in the video game world uh, around Gamergate. And uh, I can tell uh, that you've become a part of 
the male dominated space of uh, sports football yeah. uh, discussion. <laughs> like, is that is that hard? Is that more fun than it is not? Is it? Do you do you have a pretty good like healthy disconnect from shit like that, or do you still take things? Personally, I, I, I still take everything personally, so I've never escaped it, so I'm not better than anyone at this. <laughs> I have had to learn to employ the block button a lot. Wonderful. Uh, the, uh, the, mute, the mute button is nice, because um, then you just don't, they, you just don't see their notifications. Um, but it's at the beginning, you know, I was, I was pretty overwhelmed, and I had to purposely not go on to, like, the Adam Schefter tweets or when the Chiefs shared it. There was some just weird weird stuff that people said um there's been a lot of like can i curse on this thing is that cool fuck yes please <laughs> so there's been a lot of like dudes that are like nobody gives a fuck this is so stupid one guy like last week was like i hope you secretly hate yourself you ho and i was just like who are you like what did i do to you i don't even know you um so like when somebody with 15 followers loves to come out of the woodwork to be like, well, you're a woman, so you must be bad. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, imagine being so angry at the world, I guess. It's just like, I'm a super big like empath and I'm, I mean, I'm just super sensitive and I cry all the time. So that stuff frustrates me because I'm like, why are there such nasty people in the world? I don't understand. And, um, and your, your newfound fame in the 2020 is so... Like, it's so impossible to imagine somebody being mad about it because it's not like you went out of your way to become sort of some weird influencer and fake to personality. Like, you did a hilarious thing and, like, some things aligned and then you just had, like, a nice, fun ride with it and continue to. Uh, and, like, there's nothing about you that isn't just action-packed with joy and, like, there's oh. no, <laughs> there's nothing you're getting out of it in any way that would make somebody be like, oh, she's monetizing. Like, it's, it's, it's so impossible to imagine why people are mad about it except for just being like, wow, oh, a woman that works in both sports and beer. Like, I mm, yeah. really am mad that she's not dating me, so I will take it out on her <laughs> and honestly online. Yeah, I... It's, it's weird. I just have to learn to ignore or move on or like what I should have done with that guy was hit him with that Thanos gift that says like, I don't even know who you are. That's what I should have yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, the the mad men, I don't think about you at all. That's my go-to. Yeah. Yeah. That one too. Um, but I, it's been a, I've, I've kind of had to learn how to, I don't want to say like keep composure but like it's kind of a different world tweeting to like almost 8,000 followers like I I'm kind of thinking about interactions more and um I don't know sometimes I feel like I I need to tweet a certain way but um or occasionally I'll tweet something that's like super niche and dorky and it's like two likes and I'm like ah there it is not what you're here for <laughs> that's the world um, that I remember and that's how I remember <laughs> yeah because like you're you're such a good ambassador for Kansas City because you're just like I like metal. I like talking about video games. I, I'm playing Tony Hawk right now. Uh, and, uh, and and I think per, perhaps my favorite part about what your online persona is, is that you're just constantly tweeting about your workplace and how much you enjoy it and mostly how much you enjoy the people there. And like, it's, it's one of those things is like, once I hit a certain number of followers, I never talked about who I worked for again, which shows that you like actually give a shit and are invested in it and so it's again as that ambassadorship i'm just like she's the best thing that ever happened to plaza liquor but like <laughs> also this is so nice for her to to be able to be like yeah i just i like what i do like you you don't have any tweets that aren't about how much you enjoy your life or how much you love kansas city and like i can't think of anybody <laughs> better to put front and center on that kind of oh, thing it, you're just flattering me i love this this is so nice <laughs> no, I just want you to give me scoops moving forward because I'm fucking tired of you beating the pitch to things. It's it's really uh, out of control. <laughs> uh, and see, some people would say, oh, you're milking it. But uh, my, you know, my response to them is like, okay, ESPN calls you and asks you to do a bit. Are you going to say no? No. Like... <laughs> It, not this time, but next time that I have like breaking national sports news, I'll definitely do it. Like what an interesting thing to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll let's judge her for taking up a once in a lifetime offer. Yeah, people are just angry. I don't know. Like, but- uh, Do people try to leak like, everything to you now? Like if they're like, we want attention. Like is somebody on like the, the Casey sporting soccer team like trying to be like, hey, would you like do this on your Twitter? 
okay, your lights are flashing like um, you're in a horror film. I don't know what happened here. I, this, <laughs> that was weird. I guess they need to check the light bulbs. That was spooky. Did I um, ask a question that offended the spirits in the room? I don't, I don't know. Like breaking news, there's a ghost in my house. Um, we have okay, had a lot breaking. of- <laughs> We've had a lot of displays falling over at Plaza Liquor lately. So I keep joking that there's like a vengeful alcohol ghost who's just like pushing shit over and oh my gosh, it's flickering again. Yeah, I'm this right. is not ending. Was- this is real weird. <laughs> Um, what were we talking about before the haunting started? I was asking if the spirit present in the room wanted to break some news. Is that a situation? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to have to read Morse code to figure out that light. Um, I've had, this is not ending. This is actually genuinely upsetting. <laughs> it was kind of weird. It was doing this this morning before I left, too. So I'm going to hope that it's just the, the light bulb. Um, I'm hoping many- this is a situation like on the Angel TV show where you've got like a pretty chill ghost that just wants to make you tea and hang out. That'd be cool. I actually was thinking about making tea. Um, yeah, I played too many horror games for this to be happening though. <laughs> no outlets up in here. Uh, what, are, what are your top five games? Talk, talk games with us. <laughs> uh, that's, oh my God. See, any, any like lists make me stressed. So, <laughs> okay. Can I do game series that would encapsulate? Sure, absolutely. So I think my favorite is probably the Bioshock series. Um, Love that spooky ambiance. I love, so my other favorite series is probably Borderlands. Um, Borderlands 2 is definitely the superior game. Um, Love that. Lights are still flickering. The ghosts I cannot stand watching the video of this. Like you, yeah, you, you were like, <laughs> I love Bioshock. And then it's just, okay, the powers have gone out entirely. Oh, this is so weird. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to call the know. interview. I need you to go take care of whatever this is. This is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not tall enough to reach the light either. So I don't know. Um, what, what is that? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Go off and go ahead and finish your five. <laughs> um. So... Um, I'm going to say probably the Outlast series. It did make me cry um, because I got jump scared so bad, but I love, love those games. Um, Obviously, I'm a Bethesda junkie. Like the Fallout series is great. I would say New Vegas is the best Fallout game again. Um, The ghost disagrees because the lights are flickering. This is crazy. For the Um, audio medium of podcasts, I feel like we're really depriving people of how goddamn weird this interview has become. (laughs) Okay, no more video game talks. The ghost is angered, I guess. What is, as somebody that had a a wonderful 2020, what is your advice to people on how to have a really good 2021? I know you can't say like, over here is some industry uh, talk and wind up on television, but like, what's a a personal (laughs) thing that you do to keep your head above water and not go goddamn insane right now? There have been many meltdowns. So um, I... uh, I watch a lot of dog videos. I know that sounds like really cliche, but like my Reddit feed is exclusively like dog breeds. Um, <laughs> and so at like the end of a shift, like if I'm tired, I've pretty much put like a moratorium on like news or like the Twitter feed because sometimes like just getting off of a long shift and being tired and then seeing all this frustrating as hell or scary news stuff would just make me more upset so I would go to reddit and look at like our beagles or our slash you know puppers um, <laughs> but I don't know like having those escapes I guess and really the thing that's been the the most helpful for me is like putting away the media sometimes especially like before the election and I mean right now with coronavirus updates like sometimes the the media is just distressing um, yeah. Brag to me more about how you can turn off the news and ignore it. I would love to hear more about how well, wonderful that is. And and the thing is, it even sounds like extremely privileged of me to be like, I can just ignore the bad stuff in the world because it's it's not necessarily that, but it's I guess trying to save your sanity a little bit. Um, but I mean, I don't know. Last week I cried at the end of a shift because I was stressed out about. COVID and Thanksgiving. And so I don't really have the answers. It's just day by day. <laughs> Katie, where can people follow your stuff online? Um, I do the most on Twitter and Instagram. There's a lot of M's in my handle. Let me look at my phone here. Um, 
<laughs> it's Katie underscore Cam with three M's on Twitter. And then you can just search Katie Camlin on Instagram, but it's underscore Katie Cam with three M's. It's see, I wasn't made for like this kind of fame because my handle is not snappy. Um <laughs> But also definitely follow Plaza Liquor KC on Instagram. I post, um, I pretty much just like edged my way into social media there. I just kind of was like, let me do it. I'm doing it now. <laughs> um, so I like, we'll post new products. Um, I try to do things that aren't just beer um, uh, contests. We've got an advent calendar thing going on with Boulevard right now where we're donating uh, some money from sales to reconciliation services. And there's a bunch of cool prizes. Um, so you can check that out. So that kind of stuff's always on our Instagram. Well, uh, when the new Outlast multiplayer game comes out, I hope we can play it together. Uh, uh, yes. And uh, <laughs> look forward to finally meeting you in person uh, when the hell ends uh, in 2021. So, <laughs> yes. uh, Katie, thank you so much for talking to us today. <laughs> Bye. Bye. So up next here, we've got a reading from our most recent magazine. Our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment is uh, doing that thing he does so well. Uh, great voiceover guy, great actor. We're just always so thrilled to have him on the show, uh, knocking out some of these great pieces from our magazine. He's he's just such a perfect match to what we do. They're just he's a silky smooth voice, and he sounds so good, and he he makes he makes our dumb words sound even even better. Uh, than the great writers that write them. My my words are the only dumb words. You can hear the dumb words right now. You know how dumb they are. Uh, so today, Jason's doing a reading uh, from a piece by Liz Cook from our, our most recent magazine about the local black vegan scene. Uh, and when Liz pitched this to me, I was like, I don't know what it is you're saying. And she was like, okay, so like vegans, you associate that with like rich white people. And I was like, in fact, I do. And it's like, yes, because like, we live in a food desert in Kansas city. Like it is, uh, there, there are so many parts of the city where your access to food is limited to maybe a grocery store. And sometimes I, including, uh, just outside the city, we have plenty of places in rural Missouri right near us where maybe a gas station is the only place that you can get food, uh, most of the day without having to drive, uh, an unreasonably long distance. So I don't know. It, it sets people up for some failure, uh, health and nutrition wise. Uh, so the, 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 the fact that there has been a rise in uh, black-owned and run vegan restaurants uh, sort of spits in the face of that you can oh, only rich white people can take part in that sort of culinary experience. Uh, and, and so there's, there's just a lot here to unpack, but it, uh, I was like, okay, that is, that is a new thing for me. I, I did sort of put it into a category there uh, that uh, it was just sort of off limits to everyone else and certainly not the sort of thing that could ever be produced cheaply or, or that would ever really uh, have an infusion of flavors from any other culture. So um, I don't know, an exciting piece here. Uh, Jason, take it away. Black vegans are carving their own identity. Diversity in flavor, composition, community, and cucumber. Words by Liz Cook. Photos by Zach Bauman. It's not just white hippies. Gigi Jones is talking about Kansas City's vegan community, plant-based diners in a notorious cow town. The community's growing fast, and the vegan restaurant scene is growing to meet them. And it's black restaurateurs and diners who are leading the charge. Jones is one of several black entrepreneurs to open a vegan restaurant or catering business in KC in the last couple of years. She works as a health and wellness coach, stage name Gigi the Vegan, and opened her first restaurant, Gigi's Vegan and Wellness Cafe, in Westport this July. Jones has witnessed a surge of interest in plant-based eating recently, but the scene wasn't always so rosy. When she first went vegan in 2015, she felt alone. I was the elephant in the room, she says. I felt like within my community that I was the first vegan ever. I know I wasn't, but I felt that way. Jones worked hard to promote plant-based eating locally, teaching workshops at health food stores and expanding her client base but she knew black diners needed a targeted approach. Last November, she started Midwest Soul Veg Fest, a vegan food festival focused on the black community. More than 3,000 people attended. COVID-19 put a damper on a repeat festival this year. I think the face and the culture of veganism is changing, Jones says. Right now, people are seeking better, healthier lifestyles, and I'm grateful to be a part of this movement, and it is a movement. 
The movement appears to be national as well as local. According to a Pew Research Center survey from 2016, black Americans are almost three times as likely to identify as strict vegans or vegetarians than white Americans. Mainstream perceptions of veganism have been slow to adjust. Type vegan into any stock photo site and you're still likely to be greeted with variations on a theme of thin white woman trying to look through a cucumber. For a long time, those perceptions guided local restaurant offerings. Sisters and business partners Arvalisha Woods and India Purnell were inspired to open Maddie's Foods in part because they couldn't find any restaurants that catered to them. Like Jones, the pair first went vegan in 2015. At the time, we had food and we had cafe gratitude, says Woods. The restaurant scene was like a desert. No one African-American was vegan that I knew. No one was talking about it. And when we went to Cafe Gratitude, I didn't even really understand the menu. I was like, what is that? There was nothing I can even pronounce. Woods says she understands the motives behind those menu choices now, but she still craved the comfort foods she'd enjoyed before she switched to a plant-based diet. She wanted mac and cheese. She wanted nachos. The real deal, echoes Purnell, I was tired of leaving hungry. The pair started making and selling jars of vegan queso at pop-ups and food festivals. Then they launched a successful food truck, Maddie's Vegan Eats. This September, they updated the name to Maddie's Foods and moved it to a brick-and-mortar restaurant in East Brookside. The new menu features nachos, burritos, and brisket sandwiches. The restaurant's motto is emblazoned in neat cursive on a bright mural wall, Comfort Food Made Smart. Dropping vegan from the restaurant's name was intentional. Although we are vegan... I don't feel like we embody the vegan brand or the vegan message, says Woods. Sometimes vegans can be very cruel, especially to newcomers. Whatever your journey is, whatever your start is, I am celebrating you. And sometimes the vegan community doesn't do a lot of celebrating because we do a lot of condemning. We're not all mean, Purnell adds, and both she and her sister laugh. Listen, we are not all mean. Woods and Purnell aren't alone in ditching the vegan label. The term has a history that doesn't necessarily resonate with many black diners. Although people around the world have been eating plant-based diets for centuries, it was white animal rights advocate Donald Watson who coined the term vegan and founded the Vegan Society in 1944. Because of that history, it's easy to conflate veganism in general with animal rights activists in particular. But doing so collapses the diverse concerns of vegan eaters who don't fall neatly into one ideological block. Some people eat vegan for climate and sustainability reasons others for weight loss or health or religion. None of the business owners I spoke to for this story referenced animal rights as their primary motive for going vegan. Although reliable survey data are scarce and rarely capture details on race, anecdotal evidence suggests black vegans are far more likely to cite health concerns as the main driver of their diet, which invites the question, why aren't animal rights groups connecting with black vegans in the same way? It may not help that some groups have co-opted the rhetoric of anti-racist activism in clumsy ways, Take the PETA-sponsored and ultimately rejected Super Bowl ad in which cartoon eagles and bears and mice take a somber Colin Kaepernick knee to a breathily hummed national anthem. Cries of speciesism, however well-intentioned, can come off at best as tone-deaf, at worst as blatantly dismissive of anti-black racism and the ongoing struggle for human rights. And white-led animal rights organizations can't seem to keep the tofu egg off their face for long. But the most likely explanation is a simpler one. Black Americans just have bigger fish to fry. Jones, Woods, and Purnell all started eating vegan due to health concerns. So did Kimberly Vincent, the owner and chef of top-notch vegan vittles. Vincent was inspired to start selling her plant-based riffs on soul food, southern fried jackfruit bites, chicken wings, fried fish sandwiches, in 2018 after her own success curing digestive issues with a vegan diet. We have a lot of sick people, Vincent says. A lot of people are figuring out because we have a high rate of high blood pressure and diabetes, they can change the way that that runs in their family. Instead of being a statistic, they can change that. The statistics back her up. According to the CDC, black Americans are far more likely to have hypertension, asthma, diabetes, and heart disease than white Americans. They have a higher mortality rate for most cancers, and they're likely to die at a younger age than their white counterparts from all causes. In the face of these disparate health outcomes, black healthcare consumers also receive disparate treatment. Several studies have documented that black patients are less likely to receive major procedures and therapies even after controlling for insurance status, comorbidities, and the severity of their condition. They're also systemically undertreated for pain. It's no surprise that many are looking for answers outside of the traditional healthcare system. 
They're being a little more compassionate toward themselves and a little more aware now that we have control over what we put in our bodies, says Purnell. I think now it's like, oh well, let me just at least try it. Let me look into it. Black health matters, says Jones. When we look at our health, you know, not only do we not receive the same information from a physician the way that our white counterparts would, certain things, certain foods affect us more. In that vein, black-owned vegan restaurants have offered a community-based answer to a community health crisis. In black communities, there are as many dialysis centers as there are liquor stores, says Woods. There's things that are not good for us being implanted in our areas. So let me use produce to make something better for my family. I think that's why you're seeing more vegan restaurants that are black-owned popping up. Although Vincent is operating top-notch vegan vittles as a ghost kitchen for now, preparing meals for curbside pickup, she's likely to be another major player in the restaurant space soon. COVID-19 has disrupted some of her plans, but she says opening a brick-and-mortar restaurant is her ultimate goal. In my mind, I have to change the perception that people have of vegan food and show them, yes, it's vegan. Yes, it can be delicious. Yes, it can be good. Even though I serve soul food, I can say that it's a healthy soul food. That's how I feel that it can impact the black community. That's how it is impacting the black community, because it looks good, it tastes good, and they can relate to it. The proliferation and success of vegan restaurants in Kansas City suggests that that perception is indeed changing. Vincent notes that a large portion of her clientele, she estimates 40%, don't identify as vegan. At least, they don't identify as vegan yet. Some of them are interested in making healthier choices, but not ready to commit to eating plant-based full-time. Others are just attracted to the food. Vincent posts frequent photos of top-notch dishes on her Facebook and Instagram accounts to show customers that vegan food isn't just grass and twigs. Woods and Purnell say they serve a lot of non-vegan customers at Maddie's, too. And all of the entrepreneurs I spoke to say their customer base is diverse. It's definitely not just white hippies. I think that people are waking up, says Jones. I think that things have shifted. I believe that the African-American community is starting to wake up and know that it's time for a change. So, uh, ending up this show today with, uh, with a very special holiday-ish uh, guest, uh, Bill Timaeus. Uh, Bill Timaeus is, is somebody that is almost certainly known to, to most of Kansas City. Uh, he has written a religion column for the Kansas City Star for forever. Uh, he has written for a bunch of gigantic national publications. He has a bunch of books out. Um, Bill has a new book out called Love, Loss, and Endurance, a 9-11 story of resilience and hope in an age of anxiety. So here's the thing. Bill uh, Bill is religious, and Bill explores uh, very religious ideas, but Bill also uh, breaks down a lot of the nuance of religion, and not just... Uh, being Catholic or Protestant or, or what some of these belief systems are, but sort of an overarching idea of what religion means, what religion can do, and the dangers that religion can do, too. So uh, this book is actually about how he lost uh, a member of his family uh, when the planes hit the Twin Towers on 9-11 uh, and how that sent him on this journey of processing that grief uh, trying to find a way to determine the difference between religious extremism and and religion and like how those that are on the right side of, of their belief systems can find crossover and friendship with, with others that maybe they don't fully understand but probably share more with than they know. So we have a sort of spirited conversation here uh, about religious ideas, uh, about what makes a dangerous religious idea, and uh, and truly, uh, what what everyone can take from talking about what was twenty years ago, a tragedy on a scale that our brains could not process, and how this year has been that same sort of thing—a new kind of of tragedy that is so much bigger th than that that once again our brains just can't process what it is we're dealing with, and then having to ask ourselves, uh, how do you keep your heads up? How do you move on? How do you move on without making enemies of, of so many people? Uh, how do we make choices that we're not going to look back on and regret what we've done? So a uh, very interesting conversation here about his book. Uh, I hope you enjoy. Bill, welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Uh, I'm Bill Timaeus. I uh, spent uh, 
36 or seven years full-time at the Kansas City Star, uh, most of that time on the editorial page writing a column, but in the last several years, I was the faith columnist uh, for the Star. Uh, I am formally retired from the Star, although I still write a daily blog that's on the Star's website, and I write for several other publications, uh, uh, most of which cover matters of faith, religion. You you also have a Pulitzer. I feel like that's worth mentioning. Uh, I, I was a member of the staff that uh, won the Pulitzer in 82 for our coverage of the Hyatt Hotel disaster. That was not a personal Pulitzer, but it was a staff Pulitzer, and I was proud to be part of that staff. It did a terrific job. So I, I feel like we, we rarely get to discuss uh, – the role of journalism in religion. What, why did you carve out that angle, and, and what appeals to you about that? Well, it seems to me that almost every story in the newspaper or on broadcast uh, outlets has some thread of religion running through it, whether it's a story of abortion or whether it's a story of uh, court cases like prayer in public schools or this most recent presidential race where both candidates uh, uh, were appealing to people of faith, uh, somehow uh, faith tends to shape who we are as a people and what we do, uh, even if, as is increasingly the case, uh, more and more Americans identify as religiously unaffiliated. Uh, they nonetheless uh, have a spiritual aspect to them and that, that helps shape who they are. So I think it's an absolutely fascinating uh, part of life, and uh, I've been uh, pleased to help people try to understand some of that in recent years. I, I appreciate that you, you come to this from the angle of, uh, of even for the non-religious identifying that there is an element of spirituality. I, my, uh, my wife is not religious, and uh, but... She's a wonderful, good person, and uh, her whole life she's felt some strange pressure that she's like, well, I, I behave ethically, I'm good to all those around me, but it feels like uh, certain people think that if I, I don't attend worship on Sunday that like somehow I'm doing lesser, and that's been something of an uphill struggle for her. So I appreciate that you come to it from the angle of like, not everyone has to self-identify there, but there is something that runs through all of us that is worth talking about. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And in addition to that, as an American culture, we are becoming more religiously diverse. So you see uh, even uh, in the Kansas City area, more uh, more Muslims, more Sikhs, more Jains, more Hindus, uh, Buddhists. Uh, there's religious diversity uh, growing quickly in this country. And it's best that we become religiously literate so that we can get along with each other and and not and not end up killing each other <laughs> which uh, brings us to the subject of where we're talking today you have a book out called love loss and endurance a a 9/11 story of resilience and hope in an age of anxiety uh would you like to tell people what the book is about because there's a lot here <laughs> yeah sure well, the place to start is on 9-11 itself when, uh, as I was uh, assigned to write the lead commentary piece for an extra edition of The Star that day, uh, about partway through that writing that column, I discovered that uh, a son of one of my three sisters was on the first plane to smash into the World Trade Center, my nephew Carlton Fife, a terrific young man who was uh, 31 years old at the time. Uh, with a uh, a wife and a little boy, toddler, 18-month-old Jackson. And two or three days before Carlton got on that plane from Boston, he was going to a business meeting in Los Angeles. Uh, Haven told him that she was pregnant again. So uh, Parker was born in May of '02, and, of course, never met his daddy. So the, the book uh, recounts the trauma after trauma after trauma that occurred in my extended family because we lost this magnificent young man. But this, the book does not stop with my personal family story. It rather tries to explore the question of how people get sucked into 
what I call monochromatic religious thinking or monochromatic thinking of, of any kind that can lead to violence, uh, whether it's white nationalism or whether it's anti-Semitism or, or whether it's the kind of religious bunk that um, Osama bin Laden uh, taught uh, his hijackers uh, pretending that it was Islam. It was a, a, a distorted twist of Islam that they were learning and they used that to murder people, including my nephew. I, I, th I think that we have, I, I think that America or people that have the media literacy or pay attention to this have a pretty good grasp on how these monolithic ideas can take hold in people. I, I'm, I'm somebody that's worked as a, a cult buster before. I, I, I know how, uh, how seemingly very intelligent and very normal people can wind up in very ridiculous situations. I, I guess the, the bigger question is, is what do you think that, that all of these dangerous sort of resellings and repackagings of ideas have in common? What does, what does dangerous religious extremism and white nationalism have in common? Where, where are the through lines and what you think can be done about them? Yeah, that's a really good question, Buck. I, I think that uh, one of the things that is common to all this kind of, of lockdown thinking uh, is fear. Uh, when you are afraid of people because uh, you don't know them, fear is rooted in ignorance, of course, uh, often. And when you fear people, you are willing to believe damn near anything about them. And uh, when you fear losing something that you think is precious, uh, for instance, the you know it's the, the phrase that Trump made made famous, "Make America Great Again." Well, if you thought that back in the 50s, for instance, we were great, even though we were a racially segregated uh, uh, society with where women had uh, almost uh, very few. Uh, opportunities for advancement and roles and where so much else was wrong. If you thought that was great, then you, you have lots of fear in you and, and you don't want to lose uh, some imagined past. So the, the, the common thread to me is this idea of being afraid and, um, and fear makes us do just very strange things. I also like that you brought in that something that they sort of all share is is this idea of like a uh, a misremembered or distorted version of the past that that somehow <laughs> things were or 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 should return to being a way that they never were. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a <laughs> yep. complicated. Yeah, and yeah. if we're not honest, if we're not honest about that stuff, uh, we we live in a distorted present. Um, one of my previous books rooted in my hometown of Woodstock, Illinois, and in that book I describe how in the 50s as a little Cub Scout, I was in uh, my Cub Scout troop was sponsored by my Presbyterian church, uh, that that Cub Scout troop put on minstrel shows uh, in the 50s that absolutely devalued, made fun of black people. And, you know, as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, what did I know about that? Um, uh, not a lot. And only later did I come to understand how uh, deeply wrong that kind of stuff was. But uh, so you, you, want to, you want to confess uh, those things and you want to find a way uh, never to engage in them again and to unroot uh, the the thinking that went behind them, and that's part of what my new book tries to do. I I think that we all find that there is uh, <laughs> basically after you leave childhood, uh, especially with the way that the world works and how we are always uh, developing and evolving, that you can look back and be uh, very regretful of things. Which is why I understand that there is such value in religion, especially in the ability to to forgive after, you know, doing, doing the work. I, I'm fairly certain that I was in a high school production of West Side Story where the Puerto Rican gang members uh, browned up with makeup and that wasn't that long ago. And so things like that, I'm like, 
Yeah, he, he, yeah. He, today as an adult, I know that I, that was A, wrong, and B, something that somebody should have spoken up about, probably a different adult. But uh, at the time, it was just like, that's that's fine. And, and uh, there, I, I don't think that people associate uh, religion with progress in the way that it can be. Like, there is there is so much about personal and communal progress that can be found here. And I really like that your book hits on that via a lot of your discussion about the progress that can be made via interfaith understanding. What is it that you think that people need to be better at in terms of communication that would help us all understand each other a little better? Well, I think the first thing that's important is that if you are an adherent of a particular faith tradition, that you do your best to understand that tradition. There are so many people, and I speak as a Presbyterian, there are so many people who don't understand my uh, tradition who have not fully understood what what we teach what we believe uh how to how to live according to those values and so the first thing is self education and you really can't be in deep interfaith dialogue if you don't know your own tradition um so that's that's a place to start but in addition to that i think it's important to begin to be exposed to other traditions and to say to yourself, what is it that is most beautiful about that other tradition? Not what is it that is most wrong? Um, every faith tradition makes exclusivist claims, and we have to recognize that. But those aside, we can find common ground in lots of different ways. And we can grow to appreciate uh, the, the things that other faith traditions have to teach us. Uh, and I think that's really important in this, in this time. I feel like the, uh, the Presbyterians have fewer uh, exclusivity claims than most other religions, but yes, pretty, pretty calm <laughs> folks in general. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we sometimes call ourselves the frozen chosen because uh, our worship style is uh, quite unlike, uh, say, a Pentecostal worship style or a traditional black church uh, worship style. Uh, we're the folks who just kind of just kind of sit there. And we got to get better at that, but, uh, but, but I'm working on it. I agree. More cardio in church. It'd be like those spicy Methodists. <laughs> so there, there is a lot here about uh, understanding, understanding yourself, and I, I think probably having to to do some very difficult mental gymnastics because this 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 story about uh, are the story of, of of your family in 9/11 certainly like has to throw your entire religious belief system into some question not just uh, like what God allows this to happen but also certainly like you had to be instilled as so many of us were with such a sense of of anger at a different group of people, right? Is, is, was that your process? Did you have to work backwards from that? Yeah, well, one of the things that I, I knew at the time and I know more deeply now is that there is no exhaustive answer to the ancient question that theologians call a theodicy question. And that is, why is there suffering and evil in a world if God is powerful and good? Uh, we, we simply don't have an answer that satisfies everyone on that. And so when uh, these hijackers uh, uh, got a hold of Flight, 9, Flight 11, American Flight 11, and slammed it into the World Trade Center and killed Carlton and a whole bunch of other people, um, the, the question immediately was, how in the world could that happen? How could they be so focus on anger and fear and and so on that they could they could kill people so yeah i you know i have every right uh i think personal right to be angry at muslims but i recognize that the people who were the hijackers had uh, because i had studied islam for a long time uh, and in fact, I lived in India for two years as a boy and lived near a Muslim village and played with Muslim kids. Um, I knew that their version of Islam was not true Islam. And so the year after 9-11, I took a trip 
uh, with other journalists to Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Uzbekistan, and wrote about uh, Islam now and Islam in the past, and tried to help readers understand uh, this question of, of how people could do this. Um, and and yet, as I say, uh, there there is no full good answer to the theodicy question of why there's evil and suffering in the world, and and we just have to recognize that and to keep doing the best we can anyway. Uh, living anyway is is uh, sort of what I do in some ways. <laughs> I I I guess I I wanted to ask like if there was. What's the closest you've gotten to an answer on that? Because I, I think so many of us spend a lot of time wondering about why evil exists. And I know that there are standard go-to answers that I, I heard from my mister as a kid about like, well, you know, evil must be there so that you can see good and things like that. But like, it seems like there's something more, more complicated or closer there that, that, that makes, that makes day to day easier and makes, makes striving for better an easier thing. <laughs> than just to be told, like, well, well it has to be there. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things that occurs to me is that uh, in in my religious tradition, we believe that God gave us free will. And it was only, it's only because we have free will that we are in turn free to love God back. But free will also carries with it dangers. And among the dangers is that we will begin to worship things and people and ideas other than God. And when we do that, we open ourselves up to behavior that will hurt other people in various ways. And um, so that's, I suppose, the, the most complete answer that, that I've come up with about about why there's evil and suffering in the world. It's not that God wills it. It's not that God causes it. It's that God allows it to happen. Uh, and in the Christian story, allowed it to happen to God's own son, um, but but that God walks with us through this, uh, through this trouble. Um, th there are other traditions that, that think of it in different ways, but uh, th that's, that's the one that is helped me most and yet I recognize that even that is not a full explanation. What is the most interesting concept that you have gotten from a from a different religion? I know that in college I, I was able to fold in some Buddhism into my beliefs and uh, mm -hmm. outside of college I, I having spent 15 years in in Los Angeles uh, a lot of Judaism uh, became a part of my life uh, and uh, some of those things I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm really glad that I borrowed ideas here from senses of what made community to what made a good person. What, what's the, what's the best, uh, what's the best sort of uh, bleed over that you've gotten from somebody else's ideology? Yeah, there, there are several from different faiths. Uh, from Judaism, for instance, I take the idea of the importance of memory uh, that uh, we we must understand and and remember our past if we're to understand and remember our, our future and our present. Um, Judaism plays that out in various ways, in, including on its high holy days uh, in the fall. Uh, from Islam, uh, the, the the idea of spiritual discipline comes uh, into play for me. Uh, Muslims have uh, developed the practice of praying five times a day. Well, I, that's a practice that I should, but haven't uh, <laughs> picked up. I, I, I do have a, a prayer life, but, but it's not as disciplined as my Muslim friends, and, and I, I sort of envy that. In fact, I, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor has a fairly recent book called Holy Envy, in which she, as a teacher of different religions, learns what is most beautiful about other faiths. And uh, uh, those two particularly uh, strike strike me. Uh, uh, Buddhism, I, 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 you learn about uh, the the how desire and uh, the, the the need to um, acquire things uh, can can lead you astray. And 
in, in Hinduism, there is some of that as well, uh, and, a, and a kind of an openness to learn from other faiths. Uh, so lots of different uh, things that uh, other faiths can teach us, and uh, and yet to to learn them, I really think we have to understand our own faith tradition and first, and then begin to explore others and and pick up. Um, tips from them. Well, finally, here today, I, I guess I wanted to talk about how there's a, there's such relevance in the book that you've written because uh, what you are what you are writing about was a tragedy 20 years ago that was unthinkable and almost un, un, unable to be processed by the human mind, and then today we are we are 20 years later and we are once again in that situation in such a heightened and much, much different way. How do you, how do we make sense of, of what 2020 was? How do we move forward? How does anyone keep their head up? Where, where do you find faith and where should others look? That's six questions, but I think you've got the answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the uh, 9-11 terrorist attacks were shocking, uh, and, and it's not that we hadn't experienced terrorism in other ways before, but but this was on our homeland, and this was, for me, this was family. And, and so uh, when I lived through a year like 2020, which, by the way, had been an automobile, would have been recalled about February. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but when I lived through a year like this, uh, I, I have to remember the ways in which uh, I am nonetheless privileged. You know, I I, I have a house to live in. I have uh, I have groceries to eat. I have uh, family to love. Uh, uh, I, all of the ways that uh, that kind of give me perspective of what we've been through. I've been blessed not to have COVID. Uh, one of our, one of my, uh, my stepson uh, had it. Uh, so it's been in our family. Uh, but, but a year like this teaches you, I think, to have a, a more eternal perspective, to, to look at things uh, without focusing just on today's darkness. Um, today's darkness is sufficient for the day, and uh, I, I think we can, and we are looking forward to better times now that it looks like there's a, uh, a vaccine. Um, but, but getting through this kind of stuff requires us not to be so self-centered and not to be so focused on the immediate things that are happening, but to remember the broader picture of our lives. And in that broader picture, uh, between us, my wife and I have six children and eight grandchildren and uh, extended family that brings both of us joy. In fact, we know too many people. <laughs> and so the problem is not isolation as much as it is trying to stay up with all of our friends and, and family. But uh, that that's what I think about when I think about this year, and I will be thrilled when we get on to uh, January 19th, which is my publication date for the for the new book. But even more, January 20th, when we change uh, presidents and try to try to head off in a better direction. I hope. Bill, where can people find your book? Uh, it is all over Amazon. Uh, the e-version is supposed to show up there in the next week or so, but the, the pre-order is already available on Amazon. Uh, it, I hope people will order it through our local independent bookstore, Rainy Day Books. Uh, people can uh, go to my blog, just Google my last name. My blog shows up, and there you can email me, and I can I can work out a way to get you a signed copy directly. Uh, lots of different ways. It's probably going to be on the other major uh, uh, book sites like Barnes and Noble and so on. So uh, there's there's no excuse not to find it. How's that? <laughs> well, I found it a wonderful read. Uh, I, I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much for talking to me today. You're very welcome. Thanks, Brock. Thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that's been the Streetwise podcast, an extension of The Pitch from Kansas City. I am the host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch. My name is Brock Wilbur. Please, please check out the excellent work we are doing every day at thepitchkc.com. We are always doing fantastic new work. We have so many cool new voices. We have so many people that you absolutely know and love from over the years. Uh, we We are just a wonderful reflection of this community and its voice and its values. We hope that you are enjoying the, the things that we do just as much as we are enjoying making them for you. Uh, it feels very important and necessary to keep doing this work. If you ever have a few bucks to toss our way, especially in this giving season, uh, which also totally get it if we are not the top charity on your list because, God, there are so many people that need it this year. Um, and that is certainly where so much of my uh, holiday spending is going because... Uh, uh, I don't know. I can't imagine how it gets worse for anyone ever uh, than what it is right now. So um would feel pretty bad to be not helping out. But if if after after the, the other good you do in the world, you want to do some good <laughs> in our neck of the woods, you swing by the pitchkc.com. We have some donation options there. Toss a couple of bucks our way or become a sustaining member with us. You'll get access to some cool stuff early every month. You'll be entered into some drawings. It's a Pretty cool deal and just helps us keep the lights on so we can keep doing what we love for you, which you you seem to be saying that you uh, you love getting from us. So yeah, help us do what we do so we can keep helping you. Uh, and if not, no worries. Just keep coming back here uh, so we can, uh, we can keep our dialogue going. Pitch in and we'll make it through. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great holiday, everybody. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.